And I entitled today's message, Deadlift, God's Solutions to Man's Toughest Problems. And I want to begin with a quote by William Barclay, who said this. The word grace, and you're going to hear that a lot today. The word grace emphasizes at one and the same time the helpless poverty of man and the limitless kindness of God. It's an extraordinary word. Y'all remember the famous book by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? You remember that book? Well, in that book, he had a very powerful quote. He said, I left the church because there was so little grace there. I came back because it was nowhere else. In other words, we're a dysfunctional family. We're not doing the whole grace thing real well amongst each other. However, if it comes from Jesus, you're not going to find it anywhere else. This is the only place within the church of Jesus Christ is the only place you're going to find that. So, but God is limitless in his grace. God is extraordinary. God is abundant in his grace. Leighton Ford said a very famous phrase. He said, God loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Okay, this explains in one phrase the tension that you feel coming to church. A lot of folks come to church and they feel like they've been bait and switched. Here's why. It always says, come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. And the minute you get in the church, they go, change, change, change. Okay. And you're going, well, wait a second. Can I come as I am? What's going on? All right. This explains what's going on. God is the deliverer. God is the savior. Now, if you signed up for anything other than a deliverer and a savior, you signed up for the wrong God. Okay. Because what deliverers do is they... Deliver. What do saviors do? They save all the way through. In other words, yes, of course you're supposed to come as you are. You're supposed to come as broken and messed up and crazy as you are. But if you really think that God's going to be content leaving you that way, you're out of your mind. I understand that you're completely cool with having 20% garbage in your life getting beat up and having stuff go wrong and constantly hurting other people and hurting yourself. I know you're okay with it. God's not okay with it. Begin to think about this in a parental view. Parents, do you have any kids that are involved in bad relationships? Let's say they're in an abusive relationship, right? And you go, what are you doing in the relationship? And they go, well, that's okay. I love him. I'm okay with it. What do you want to scream as a parent? I'm not okay with it. I don't care if you're okay with it. I'm not okay with it. And that's how God is. Is he says, listen, come to me, but if I'm going to save you, I will save you all the way through. So no, I'm not going to allow you to just go, no, that's cool, God, I'm fine. I don't need you to clean up the rest. He will clean up the rest because that's what he does. As we get into this book, this whole series is about remembering why we're so excited about God, why we're so excited, why there's joy in our salvation. We forget sometimes. Now, there are three groups of folks here today. I'm going to divide you all into three categories. The first category is those of you that have come into this church and you're checking the Jesus thing out or you came because someone invited you and you don't really know why you're here. Okay. If you have never confessed or made the decision to make God your boss of your life and the savior of your sin, to cleanse you from all of your sins, if you've never made that choice, I got great news for you. 
Because today's message is all about that. It's all about the excitement and an open invitation for you to engage with your God because your God's going to whisper to you all day long how much he loves you. The second category is Christians that have been living under the weight of their sin and they felt beat up for months. All they got is the accuser saying, you're a loser, you're nothing, you'll never amount to anything, look at your sin, you're a horrible person, you're a horrible Christian. If you have felt like that, I got great news for you. God has a message for you today, and it's about how free you really are. And the third category is what I call victorious Christians. People that do know this truth, and you are living like it's true. You know what? I got a message for you. You're going to be so pumped up when you leave here because you're going to remember why Jesus is so incredible. So whoever you are, I got a message for you. And it's pretty extraordinary. Now, I've done a lot of reading in my life. I read constantly, always multiple books at at any given time. Always, I have actually eight in my side stand right now. And I'm going through seminary, so I've always got books going and flying. Well, there's one guy I enjoy reading periodically. Can't read him all the time because he would knock me apart. But he's kind of like the C.S. Lewis writer of our day. His name's Dallas Willard. I don't know how many of you have ever read stuff by Dallas Willard. But he said some stuff that, you know how when you read in a book, something just clicks in with your heart and you go, oh my gosh, that's, that's so true for me. And you can't shake it. He said this one phrase. Now, to the rest of you, it's kind of a no-duh statement, but to me, it was a big deal. He said, Christianity is more than just sin management. All of a sudden, I was—I almost knocked my wind out as I went, no matter how vibrant of a Christian I am, that's what I've made it. Everything else seemed to be superfluous. Everything else seemed to be details. I couldn't focus on the excitement of what the Holy Spirit was going to do next and how he's going to move over here. And I couldn't focus on all the joy of being a human being and just being made in God's image and making him happy and joyful. I couldn't focus on any of that stuff because that all seemed like details. I spent all my time focusing on me and my sin. If I had less sin, I was happy. If I had more sin, I was sad. And I went, you know what? I have made Christianity merely sin management. And that's not what it's for. So whatever category you're in, if sin is your problem, I got a promise for you and it's going to fill in the blank in front of you. It's this. God's love is stronger than our sin. God's love is stronger than our sin. If you don't know Jesus and you go, I can't even be near God. God doesn't like me. God hates me. He's waiting to beat me up. No, that's not true. God's love is stronger than your sin. And he wants to love you today. If you're saying, well, I can't live victorious because I'm still so screwed up. God's love is stronger than your sin. That is the message of scripture. And that is the message that we'll hang on to today. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And the Bible's handed to you. It's page 827, 827. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses, and then I'll pray for the word this morning. It begins like this. Paul is writing to the church in the Ephesian region or Ephesus area, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he wrote about 2,000 years ago. He said this, As for you, Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's called the sin problem. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would illuminate by the power of your Holy Spirit the word to us today that we might see and catch on and lock into and have revealed to us the words that we need to understand for our lives today. May we be embraced by the gospel. May we come to life in your sight. May you help us to laser focus on what you want to tell us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's tear this apart. Paul begins, as for you, and he's speaking to a non-Jewish Christian audience. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, you remember last week, I did this whole long talk about what it means to be in Christ. Do you remember that? And I said, there's a verse in the Bible that says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I said, whatever in Christ is, that's where you want to be because there's no condemnation there, right? So whatever it means, get in there. That's on one side of the ledger. On the other side of the ledger, if you're not in Christ, you are in sin. You see that phrase? It says in sin. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Those are two different words in Greek. What is transgressions? The word in Greek is paroptima. What does it mean? It means to know the right way and choose otherwise. It's a willingness. It's two paths. One path is saying uh, horror, destruction, murder, and woe. One way. Super happy life-giving way. This way. And you just choose the other path. It is the willing choice against what is right. That is a transgression. Now, unfortunately, we seem to think that that's the only kind of sin. And we began, especially in America, to use phrases that drive me insane. Okay, so if you know me and you're ever talking to me, please don't use this phrase because my head will spin around and I will begin to go insane. All right, here's your phrase. I'm a good person. Okay, don't ever tell me that. All right, I will freak out on you. Okay, no, you're not a good person and I don't want to hear about it. What you're trying to say, I know what you're trying to say, you're just messing it up. No, you're not a good person. What you keep trying to say is, I can, I have the right to dictate what is bad and what is good. And what I say is murderers are bad and I've never done anything like that. So I'm a good person. No, you're not. Because in one way, you're only looking at this phrase. You're trying to say, I have never chosen the bad path. First of all, you're a liar. All right. So you got that going against you right now. All right. But it doesn't just say we are dead in our transgressions. It says we're dead in our transgressions. And what's the next word? Sins. That is a different word in Greek. That work is hamartia. Hamartia is a shooter's word. A commentary said that's how they described it. You take an arrow, you draw it into the bow, you pull back, you aim at the target, you fire and you miss. That's called human nature. Of course, you're going to miss sometimes, right? But every time you miss, that's hamartia. You've missed the mark. Do you understand for every human being, anything less than exact perfection every time is homartia. Are we beginning to see the problem? See, we are not going to strike the target every time. You can't do it. Why? Because you're broken. 
Now, I ripped this analogy off from somebody brilliant. I don't remember who it was. But if you're traveling in a ship and you're trying to chart a course and you're trying to go perfect on the course, if your rudder's broken, no matter how hard you hold the steering wheel, you're going to go off course because the bottom gear is broken. So you're going to keep drifting. But you're straining with all your might to hold the steering wheel. The steering wheel is not your problem. Do you understand all throughout history, you've had people that cling to the steering wheel with everything they have. The monastics, the people that are in the monastic order, the monks, the nuns, uh, the aesthetics, the people that are going out into the wilderness and trying to do everything right, or the stoics in the past. Everybody's hanging on with all their might to make sure they don't err. What's the problem? You're a drifter by nature. You will always drift. There's no other way to do it. You're broken inside. You don't sin and then become a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner. That is hamartia. So what is our sin problem? You can't get away from it. All the stuff you didn't mean to do is still happening. And all the stuff you meant to do is happening. So that's what we're trying to deal with. He said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. What does it mean to be dead? Ah, that's where the church has to fight with itself, right? We all got to draw a line in the sand and we all have to argue about it and bicker and debate. Predestination, free will, predestination, free will. And everyone does their little chants. Okay, I get it. All the Calvinists want to go have a football game against the Arminianists and everyone wants to fight and argue. Okay, here's why. They're trying to determine what this word means. What does dead mean? Now, the Calvinists or the predestination guys, the guys that say God did everything, are on one side. And they're saying the word dead means dead. Okay, that's their definition. All right. It means dead, dead. In other words, you can't respond to anything. There ain't nothing you can do. You are a dead object and you cannot respond to stimulus. On the other side, the Arminian side, or the side of free will, they say, well, hold on a second. That's not what it means. Remember in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit for if you, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What happened when they ate it? They didn't die. So to die doesn't mean die. It means you're as good as dead because a deeper death has occurred that you can't change, right? So their side is, hold on a second, the scenario is not that. The scenario is, if you are out thousands of miles from shore in the ocean and you're treading water, I'm treading water, treading water, treading water, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. There's no other way around it. Unless you are saved and picked up out of that water, you will die. You're as good as dead. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You're just drifting in the water and there's nothing. It's only a matter of time. Have you ever heard the phrase dead man walking? What does that mean? It means you're as good as dead because you're on your way to your deathbed. I don't care where you are in your theological construct. I don't care whether you're a Calvinist. I don't care whether you're a Mennonist. Here's the problem. We're dead. You guys following where I'm at? No matter how you look at it, we are dead in our sins Period. And there's nothing we can do to fix our situation ourselves. Are we all clear on that? You are dead in your transgressions and sins. He said, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world. That phrase world is cosmos in Greek. What does cosmos sound like? What's the cosmos? We've always used that phrase, right? The cosmos is how the world thinks. If you could kind of encapsulate culture, 
talk with the philosophers, the advertisers, all the things that kind of tell you what to do, you would get the cosmos or you would get the knowledge of this world. Now, please don't be ignorant enough to believe that there's any such thing as an autonomous move. A lot of us really are into this freedom gig. I just want to be free to make my own decisions. You've never made your own decisions. Why do you use the toothpaste you do? Because the advertisers told you to. That's why. You've never made your own decision ever. You wear the clothes because that's what we told you to wear. You do all the things because that's what we told you to do. No one's doing any freedom. You're always being pushed and prodded by someone. And in one way, if you buy into the system of this world, you're going to do it that way. He said, but not only do we live under that influence... But there's also another puppet master that's pulling the strings. Look at the next phrase. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Who's that? Satan. What is he trying to tell us? That all persons that do not have Jesus as their Lord and Savior are all demon possessed? No. But let's talk about that for a moment. If you are a believer, you use phrases like I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? You're possessed by the Holy Spirit, right? What does that mean? Does it really mean the Holy Spirit forces you to do stuff you don't want to do? Kind of like, I can't help it. I'm going to take the communion. I'm going to take the communion. Ah, I can't stop it. Okay, no. It's influence, yeah? In the same way, you have to understand that any soul that is not God's is on neutral territory to be messed with by the enemy. He has free reign to walk in and start influencing you and messing with your head. It's hard enough as a believer to not buy into his lies. But if you don't have Jesus, you're free floating. And that means he can make you do all sorts of stuff just by influence. He doesn't have to possess you. He can just suggest it and you'll run with it. He said, so we were following all this garbage. And he said, unless you think I'm trying to be elitist, look at verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time. In other words, there is no different quality of human. We're all the same. This is Paul the Apostle talking. Outside of Jesus in the New Testament, I don't know a more powerful evangelist. And he said, I was in the same boat. What are you talking about? We don't have different levels of human beings. Nobody is born better or worse. That's ridiculous. At the heart of all racism, isn't that the point of what they're trying to say? That some are born better or less than someone else? That is garbage. We are all the same. We're the only one category. It's called humankind. And we all need Jesus. And we all need grace. Amen? There is no difference. We were all like that. So we have no reason to be arrogant. We have no reason to be cocky. We are all the same. He said all of us at one time lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. That word sinful nature is sarks in Greek. It means humanity without God. Self. So how did we live? We gratified the cravings of ourselves. That's pretty fair to say. Because if you don't have God, what else do you have? You just have your own opinions. And if you follow your own opinions, that's in essence selfishness. I know you're trying to do good things, but you're doing them because you think they're good. That's still self. He said we were all there and we were following its desires and thoughts. In other words, we were letting our own nature push us around. We weren't in charge of it. It was in charge of us. Therefore, like the rest, 
We were by nature, what? Objects of wrath. Okay, so what's our problem? Remember, God is, God hates sin. Now, I understand that the way we look at sin is a little confusing for us. We seem to think that in some way God makes arbitrary, random decisions as to what's sin and what's not. Okay? We look at it kind of like this. Have you ever studied the dietary laws of the Jewish people in the Old Testament? And you've got to be really bored, but have you ever done that? Okay. Well, it's really freaky because you start reading what animals they can eat and what ones they can't. They start going, well, this one has this many toes and this one. You're like, what? Really? We're counting toes. Is that what we're doing? And then it's like, well, you can totally eat cows, but stay away from pigs. And you can absolutely eat this rabbit, but please don't eat the bat. You're like, oh, darn, I was going to so much eat a lot of bats today. Okay. The point is, it seems like all the animals had to line up before God. He just went down the line and goes, can't eat, can't eat, can't eat, can't eat, can't eat, can't eat, can't eat. And it's just randomly grabbing animals. Okay. We see that way about sin. We keep going... God's going through and going, I don't know, uh, this one, no, they're going to have too much fun. Put that one as a sin. That one, nah, they'll like that one too. Put that one as a sin. Okay, that one's cool, that one's cool, that one's cool. Here's what you must understand. The essence of all sin is hurting yourself or others, period. And no, God's never going to like that. If that's the case, he will always hate sin. And if he always hates sin, he's going to get rid of it somehow. And you know how he's going to do it? He's going to burn it up. But what if that sin is in you? Guess what's hurtling your way? But a big old ball of fire known as the wrath of God. He said, by our very nature, we were sin laden and we were fit to be burned. That was my problem. So is that a big problem? Yeah, I'd say that's called mankind's greatest problem. How did God solve it? Look at the next word. What's the next word? But, that's a great word in scripture. But, because of his great love for us, in other words, what was God's motivation? Love. If your formula has anything else, you're wrong. You weren't saved for any other reason, but God loved you. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, y'all know what mercy means? Giving something to somebody that doesn't, they don't deserve it. God is rich in mercy. Now, hold on. We keep creating God in our own image and we keep telling God what he's like. God told us what he's like. In Exodus 38, Moses said, I want you to reveal yourself to me. Tell me your name. Tell me what you're like. And what did God say? I'm gracious and compassionate. I'm loving. I'm forgiving. In other words, let me tell you what I'm like, because you keep coming up with some formula about how I'm the bad guy. I'm not the bad guy. I'm the good guy. So whatever your formula is, God must have love in him. Right. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Why in the world would he save us when we were anti-God? Because that's, in essence, what that verse just said. While we were still spitting in his face, while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we were trying to ignore him, while we were trying to block out his voice, he loved us and died for us. Why in the world would he do that? Because he looks at us with different eyes than we look at each other with. How do I know that? Listen to this verse. 
Matthew 9:35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is that how you view mankind? Or are they still your competitors that you have to fight against? Why did he heal every disease and sickness? Well, partly to show that he was a Messiah. But do you realize that everyone he healed ended up dying? Are we all clear on that? Because they're not here today, right? Okay, so they all died. So it was not effectual. So why did he heal them? Because they were hurting? That's it? Do you understand that you're supposed to hate suffering? Are we all clear on that? I keep getting a lot of people that ask me and they go, this suffering, why is there suffering? I hate it. What do you think my response is to be? You're supposed to hate it. Of course you hate it. It's horrible. There's nothing good about it. God doesn't like it. And even Jesus, while he's walking through the territory, knowing full well these people must die to get nearer to him, he's still healing them. Why? Because they're hurting inside. So he took the time and backed off his ministry and he said, let me minister to your need. That's extraordinary. That's the love of our Savior. It says what? It is by grace... You have been saved. There's that word. It is by grace that you've been saved. In other words, it's because of God's love and kindness, period. It is by grace that you're saved. Not because you're a super great swimmer and made it to shore. It's not because you're a super fantastic human being. No, you're only saved for one reason. That is the grace of God alone. He was nice to you and me. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. One of the commentaries I read said it's a lot like Lazarus. You all remember the story of Lazarus? Jesus' buddy that died. So first of all, he got sick and his life got horrible and miserable and then he died. Well, then he's in the tomb for three days and Jesus comes rolling into town. And he says, roll back the rock. I want to talk with my friend. And he said, Lord, you know, he's been dead for three days. He's really going to smell. And Jesus said, excuse me, I'm God. Can you please move the rock? Thank you. (laughs) Lazarus, get out here. Well, remember, they wrapped him up like a mummy. So here he comes off an hour. (laughs) And he's got to come up, you know, and he goes, take off his clothes. Give him some new clothes. Now, remember, what's the only thing worse than dying once? Dying twice. There you go. So (laughs) Lazarus again died again. But. The point is what? He was taken from the grave, raised up, set free, given new clothes, and came back to life. But even more than that, he it's saying right here that we are raised up with Christ, not only to life, but to ascending up into the Father's right hand. We have been ascended with Jesus. That's extraordinary. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Meaning you haven't even seen the beginning of the love that God has for you. He will bless you in ways that are extraordinary and you've never imagined them. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through what? Faith. Is it by being perfect? No. How then is it accessed? By believing in the one who came to save you. That's how we get saved. You don't get perfect to get saved. You get saved to get perfect. You understand what I'm saying? 
It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Once again, you got a gift. Jesus slides it over in front of you. What do you do with a gift? There's two things that are demanded when you have a gift put in front of you. What do you do? First one, open it. Second one, say thank you. Okay, we all learn this stuff in kindergarten, I hope. All right? Open it, say thank you. We get all wrapped up in this thing. Well, I don't know. Am I supposed to be able to open it? What if mankind can't open it? Oh, I don't know what to have. Okay, open the stupid gift. If there's a gift in front of you and Jesus said, I want to save you, you're supposed to say thank you and open it. So I, you may look at it backwards on the other side of life and go, you know what? It was all God all the time and I never, he was moving my hands and opening the gift on his own. I don't care. Just open the gift. Because otherwise you're still dead in your sins. The salvation is in that gift. And it's been slid in front of you today. We must open the gift. I know you don't know everything about Jesus. I don't know everything about Jesus. I know you don't know all the ins and outs of your faith. I don't know all the ins and outs of my faith. But what you know, have you engaged with? That is my question. He said this. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, meaning that you can earn it. Why? So that no man can brag about it. Why? Every human being wants to brag about what they did. Look at me. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I saved myself. That just makes you a jerk. You understand what I'm saying? No, you did not. God had to rescue you. That's called humility. That's the only way it works. For we are God's workmanship. That word is poema in Greek. It means poem, where we get the word, or masterpiece. And the idea is, do you remember in the days of creation that God, every time he'd make something, he'd go, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he got to mankind. What did he say? That's very good. In other words, angels, check it out. Look at my dirt bags. Whoa! Look at that. Took a little bit of dirt, made a little bag. Oh, check it out. It's a little person. I'm going to put my spirit inside that. Watch this. You understand what I'm saying? And the angels went, whoa! Okay, but why? It's a craftsmanship. It's something only God can do. With his own hands, he began to move the dirt around and formed a human being and breathed his life into it. That's extraordinary. That is what we are. And that is why when we harm one another, it's so unacceptable. Because you're messing with God's masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus. To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What do we do when we get saved? We bring life to others. That's what we do. When you are filled full of life, you spill over and bring life to others. What does that look like? Sometimes it's sharing the gospel. Sometimes it's ministering to needs. Sometimes it's praying and intercession. Some, whatever it is, you start doing God's stuff. That's why we were saved. So what was our big problem? Our sin stood between us and God. How did it get solved? The grace of God. And it's no longer a problem. But we have another problem. Most of us are non-Jews. We're Gentiles. We've got a big, a big, big problem. Jews have the corner market on God. Now what do we do? He puts it right here. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, quote, unquote, uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, meaning that done by the body, by the hands of men. What is he talking about? He's talking about circumcision. Y'all know what circumcision is? Are we all adults here? I have some visuals. 
No, I'm just kidding. I'm just screwing around. I just... Okay, I just want to see if you're awake. Okay, here's the point. We know what it is. Now, why in the world God chose circumcision to be a sign of whether or not you're Jewish? I don't get it. First of all, 50% of them are women. Right? Is this not bizarre? Then it's an awfully hidden sign. But for some reason, God specifically kept setting him aside and going, nope, these are my special people. These are my special people. These are my special people. And he made that as an agreement. Now, what they needed to see it as was an amazing blessing and an amazing responsibility. But what they ended up making it was an amazing way to be an elitist. And they began to hate anyone non-Jewish. They had such mean and nasty things to say about the Gentiles. They would say, you're the uncircumcised. And they weren't just talking about physically. They were talking about you're dirty. You're messed up. God doesn't like you. He doesn't love you. You're not one of his chosen people. You got nothing. We got everything. We are the society with a God king. Do you understand how optimistic Judaism is in light of the ancient world? All the other religions were based on reincarnation or nihilism. Everything was not happy in the end. But the Jews had a promised Messiah. No matter how bad their lives were, their future was going to get better. They were the ones that had Yahweh come to them and say, I am your God, you are my people. And I will establish special promises with you. Do you see how incredible it is to be one of the chosen? Do you understand what it is to be a Jew? It's extraordinary gift, but it had become something bad. All throughout the Bible, you see God getting mad at the Jews because he keeps going, I put you in this special category to be a blessing to the world. Why are you guys hoarding it? Stop it. That's not what I made you for. And is not the Christian church doing the same thing? He said this. He said, I remember you were on the outside. I remember the Jews made fun of you. Verse 12, because remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ. In other words, if you weren't a Jew, you had no coming Messiah. You had nothing. As a matter of fact, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. That's our second major problem. What's the next word? But, okay, right? That's our big problem. But that one got solved too. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, meaning the Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now I found out in some of my research that there was a common phrase that the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis would use, that if you became a convert to Judaism, you were called, quote, brought near. So Paul's using a very familiar phrase and he says, through Jesus, you have all been brought near. You have been brought near through the blood of Christ for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two, meaning the Gentiles and the Jews, he has made them one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What's he talking about? Not only the animosity and the hatred between the two. But I think he's referring to the temple. You guys remember how the temple was designed. Let's go old school. The old temple. Huge building where they would meet for worship. The way the temple was constructed was in a series of courts. You guys remember how this works? 
most of you. Here's how it worked. If you walked in the front gates, you were in the most general outer court, the furthest away from God's presence. That was called the court of the Gentiles. In other words, if you wanted to convert, you're still a non-Jew, so you can pretty much step in the outside court. You can dip your foot in the pool. That's it. You got nowhere else to go. You can go no further. God is still very far away, but we'll let you get in a little bit. The next court, if you're a Jew, you can step forward. And what's the next court? The court of the women. Ladies, if you're a Jew, you're all right. However, eh. if you're a man, you take the next step. That's called the court of the Israelites. And that's where you did all your sacrifice and you did all your connections with God and everything where you can engage with God. But you take one more step if you're a priest. And that is what? That's now a holy place. But only if you're leadership, only if you're priests. And only one time a year could the high priest, one guy on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could step into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. You remember that? Those are called dividing walls. Those are barriers. Why was it so extraordinary that when Jesus died, he tore the curtain in two. God tore, tore the curtain in two from the top down. That means God ripped it. No man could ever rip it like that. And God shattered it. And all of a sudden, God went worldwide. All of a sudden, the spirit and the very presence of God went everywhere and was accessible to the common man and woman. Is that not extraordinary? That's why we have joy. Because that's what Jesus did. By abolishing in his flesh, meaning dying on the cross as a man, the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Now, there's two words in Greek for new. There's neos or neos, which means new again. In other words, and the commentary uses this example, it said, let's say a factory makes another pencil. You'd go, whoa, really cool, look, a pencil. Okay, but we have a billion pencils, so it's like, oh, that's nice. But then there's a different Greek word called kainos, and kainos means absolutely new of quality, never been made before. That's the phrase here. He said he will take the Jews and the Gentiles from their separate entities and fuse them together in a brand new entity that never existed before. By the way, that's what happens in a wedding. You guys tracking with me? Two separate entities become kainos. They become new. They fuse together and a brand new entity is created. That's why it's such a big deal. He moves on. He says what? By uh, It says, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. The word for reconcile is to make estranged friends love each other again. It's a pretty kind of cool word. By which he put to death their hostility. How did he do that? Common ground of the cross. When you love Jesus, you begin to love what he loves. And it's hard to hate his kids. What is the point? We hang out here at church and we're supposed to have more unity. Why? Because we have a common bond. If I love Jesus and you love Jesus, I think you and I need to love each other. Make sense? He came and preached peace to those who were far away, the Gentiles. And he preached peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, Gentiles... You are no longer foreigners and aliens. What are those words in Greek? First word for foreigners is xenos. It means someone that just rolls into town and everyone keeps at the fringe because they're suspicious of them. 
And they always keep him as an outsider. We are no longer those foreigners. We're no longer even aliens. Aliens are people that paid tax to live there, but you're still not a full citizen. We're not fringe anymore, but we are. What's the next phrase? We are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Listen, here's how it's going to work. I told you, I don't want anyone leaving here without maximum joy. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have the team come on, come on up here and and lead us a little bit as we close. But I need you to hear this. What we're about to do is we're about to enter into a prayer time. And if you have never, ever asked forgiveness for sins from a holy and righteous God that can't wait to love on you, you must do that today. And you're going, well, what's it going to cost me? Everything. Far more than you ever imagined. You're sliding all your chips over on Jesus. You're all in. You are not your own anymore. It's all about Jesus from here on out. But I don't know everything about him. I get that. But are you all in with what you know? For that, when I begin to pray, I'm going to have you with everyone closed eyes and not looking. I'm going to have you stand up right where you're at. You're not coming up here. It's not for me. I have my eyes closed. I'm not even going to know you're standing up. You're not getting saved for me. This isn't an emotional ploy. This is between you and your God, the Savior that showed up and says, I love you. Forget that guy up there. Forget all these people here. It's you I want. If you are willing to admit that you're so broken that you can't fix yourself and you need cleansing and you're willing to make him not only your Savior, but the master of your life, I'm going to have you stand up and I'm going to pray for you. At the same time, there's another group of folks If you are a Christian that is filled just weighed down by the garbage in your life, I'm going to have you stand as well when we pray. Because I'm praying for you too. You need to remember that you have been set free and there is no condemnation on you. I'm going to have you stand up. Everyone else that's living in victory with Christ, I want you to stay seated. Because your time is going to come when they hit the last song. And we can all stand up and be excited about what we have. You ready to do this? Let's close our eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, and I do ask, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you stand up right now where you're at. It's not about us. It's about you and God. Heavenly Father, we stand as a sign and commitment to wanting you. You must save us because we can't do this alone. I ask right now, Father, that where we're at in our hearts and where we're at in our lives, that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us of all our trespasses, everything we did on purpose, everything that we've done on accident, that our whole past would be wiped free, that we would leave here children of God, that we are no longer under wrath, we are only under grace, that we are only under freedom, only under happy joy that comes from you. And we begin a new life. For those of you that are Christians that have been weighed down, I want you to stand up as well. Wherever you're at, stand up. Heavenly Father, we ask that you remind us of what you've done. 
that we're tired of carrying this guilt around. We're tired of carrying this garbage. We've made everything about sin management and we can't even worship you because we keep thinking about ourselves. I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. Of course we're unworthy. God, would you show us that in you, Jesus, we are worthy. Holy Spirit, course to this place right here, right now, and begin to click in with all the hearts and raise us up freed and whole and healthy that we may leave with freshened spirits. Could I have everyone else stand with me as we close in the song?